Trigger warning. This episode contains adult content and may be distressing for some listeners. Pride Across the Ages is a collaborative project to amplify and celebrate the voices of regional LGBTIQA living in central Victoria. All episodes were recorded on Jar Jar land and we respectfully recognise that First Nations sovereignty was never ceded. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. This project has been made possible with the financial assistance of Melbourne Pride and with the support of the Mount Alexander LGBTIQA steering group the Mount Alexander Shire Council, and Main FM 94.9. My name's Grace. I was born in Ballymena, Northern Ireland, in October 1936, and uh, I identify as lesbian. I was brought up, I'm the 11th in a family of 13. And uh, for those who know, Northern Ireland was kind of a split country, Catholic and Protestants. I was a Protestant, and mostly Catholics had large families. But uh, the churches used to preach that Protestants should have large families, otherwise they'd be voted out. And the funny thing is, would you believe that in 2020, the Catholics outvoted the Protestants in Northern Ireland? So they obviously didn't listen to the clergy, the Protestants, that is. My childhood was really wonderful. I was brought up on a farm. Um, It was 60 acres, which is much bigger than the average there in those days. It was a mixed farm. Um, We grew lots of different crops, and we had dairy cows and a few sheep. And my father was really a very progressive farmer. He was, I would say he was almost an organic farmer. In, in the 1940s, so that was quite something. Um, I can remember that I just loved working outside. I'm the 11th, as I said, in the family, so I have two younger sisters, and I and then the next elder ones were three boys. So the three boys spent most of their time outside, and my two younger sisters spent most of their time inside. But I spent most of my time outside. And I spent a lot of time with my father, you know, doing various things. Even when I was much older, when I was at secondary school, when I was 18 or something, I remember he would say to me, come and help me. I've, I've got, there's a, a sheep, a ewe lambing, and I think she might have lambed, and this might be about 10 o'clock at night. He said, let's go and check her out. So it was snowing. And we'd head off, uh, he with a big torch and me following, all geared up in our snow gear. And we came across this uh, little lamb that had been born. And it was dead. It looked dead, lying in the snow. So he just picks it up, grabs a handful of snow, rubs it on its body, uh, both sides, and it comes to life again. So then we, I carry the lamb in and he brings the ewe in and we put her. We had a place where they went, were undercover, you see. And then I can remember I had my own Clydesdale horse. None of the others in the family had their own horse, but I did. I had my own horse and my own cow, Daisy, the cow. And I used to ride this Clydesdale horse back in from the paddocks because we were still using horses in those days. My father used horses to 
supply the paddocks and to cut hay. Everything was done with horsepower. So I have to say that it was a particularly happy childhood. And I learned so much from my father and he and I. Even in later years, my two younger sisters went off nursing and uh, and I was there, the only sort of one at home sometimes. Um, and my father and my mother would have gone to bed. My father and I would sit and chat at night and, and then he would say, what about some supper, Gracie? And uh, so I'd make a cup of tea and a piece of what he loved was a piece of soda bread with butter and jam on it. <laughs> before he went to bed <laughs> one of those little habits in a way a part of that living wanting to be outside all the time I had said to my mother I, I really need to wear a pair of trousers and of course girls didn't wear trousers in those days you remember those days do you, do you any of you remember the days before, before girls wear trousers so the only trousers were from people older than me so I used to wear these trousers put them on and the tops would come up to about my boobs and I would have a belt around the middle. <laughs> One of my older brothers, he used to call me Baggy. Baggy, which I hated. And he just, every time, every time I would, he would see me in my trousers, he would call, Oh, Baggy, what are you up to? Or something, you know. And, and that, uh, that really uh, annoyed me intensely. But the memories really are of things like as some of you may know, the in, in the Northern Hemisphere, animals need to be housed for about five months of the year during wintertime. The grass doesn't grow, there's nothing for them to eat. So they have to be housed inside, for, inside, out of the weather, and they have to be fed. So what do you feed them on? Dairy cows were fed on things like turnips, cabbages, kale and sugar beet. So we grew all those things. So we grew uh, acres and acres of uh, big things called mangles. They were big, big turnips and so on. And every afternoon, we would go out and we would snag turnips with a little t tiny axe thing. We'd cut the turnips off and throw them up on the trailer. And it was quite a big trailer, you know. Uh, uh, it would be about uh, an 8 by 5 trailer or something. Um, was loaded high with all these foods to feed the cattle. And so my mother, she'd be inside and she'd say to some of the family, run outside and bring me in a cabbage, a turnip and a bunch of kale, OK? And that's what we ate for dinner. So we ate the same as the cows, you know? <laughs> I always say that's why I'm so fit and healthy at 84, because I was brought up in cow food. <laughs> so there were many, many wonderful memories there on that farm. Because we were well out of a town and we had no tram modes of transport, only bicycles, like I rode three miles to school every day, we, uh, we spent all our, our recreation really was at home. Um, I mean, I've never, I had never seen a film I was 18 in a cinema till I was 18. We used to have little slideshows and things like that even family in Australia who'd migrated many years before I came here in 1959 um, used to send home little little not videos they were little uh, circular things with slides on them that we could show and things like that. At Christmas time the older sisters who were away working or at college or something would organise Christmas for us and we'd have hang up our stockings, actual stockings, and they would have an orange in the bottom and a peach perhaps because that was something we only got once a year. And apples, an apple because they were grown in Northern Ireland, we'd get the apple. And there would be a pen and a pencil and perhaps a pair of socks. 
and a hanky and a few things like that. <laughs> so those were our Christmas things. And I remember on one occasion the older sisters made these little, um, I, I wouldn't uh, recommend them these days, <clears throat> but they were gollywogs dolls and uh, we thought they were just something. So many memories really. I mean I can remember in about, about 1940, 41, 42 or something, I would have been about six, Belfast was bombed during the war. And we had to, we lived in quite a large house actually. It was uh, three stories and had six bedrooms. And uh, we used to have to put, uh, cover the windows so that there was no light went out, otherwise you risk being bombed, you know. And so we used to pin blankets on the windows, would be pinned. But then we would get in, in outside the blankets, between the blankets and the glass, and we, I remember watching the bombing of Belfast, huge huge flashlights, yeah, yeah, bombing Belfast. <clears throat> yeah, so that was, um, I don't know whether that would be a cherished memory or not, but it's certainly a memorable memory. And uh, even a bomb landed on my aunt, my mother's sister's farm was about 10 miles away from where we lived, and there was a crater about 40 foot across and about 8 foot deep on their farm where a small part of a bomb or something had landed, not far from their home. Anyway. As far as homosexuality is concerned, there was, I didn't even know what that was. I didn't know there was such a thing. And I never really knew about it until I came to Australia in 20, when I was 23. But I did have uh, an affair when I was at agricultural college. It was a residential college and we lived in dormitories and there was two dormitories, 20 beds in each one. And there were beds, single beds uh, with the heads together down the middle of the room and then each one had a wardrobe and you had a curtain around the same space. You had your single bed and then a space the same size. So that was your space. Anyway, this, this friend was on the other side behind me. And, and we used to chat at night, pull the curtain back, chat, 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 chat. So we, then we started holding hands, we started cuddling through the thing, and then, then she would slip around, she would quietly come, walk right down to the end and come back and hop into bed. <laughs> we had a lovely time, you know, just playing around, smooching and kissing and <laughs> mutual masturbation a little bit occasionally and things like that. But... Anyway, one of my older brothers had migrated to Canada and he was home on holidays. And this friend of mine, uh, she only did one year at Agricultural College and then she got a job on a farm near where I lived. And I don't know whether she did that on purpose or not, but anyway, she used to come and visit me and we used to have nice times together. But my brother, <clears throat> who's about eight years older than me, he, this friend was a year old, younger than me, he came home for holiday and for three weeks and during that holiday this my friend came to visit uh, a few times and met my brother and my brother to cut a long story short he fell in love with her and he ended up taking her back to Canada and she married him <laughs> I've actually met her since I met her um, about 12 years ago I went back to Canada that brother actually died he died fairly suddenly and they had been divorced by this time they had three children but um, I met her at the uh, at the funeral and uh, it was quite funny I don't know whether I should say this or not but she 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 put her arm around me and she ran her knuckles down my back you know <laughs> 
So there were still old feelings there, and yet she'd gone and got married and so on. So there were no gender role models at all when I was young. I mean, the men did the men's work and the woman did the women's work. For example, I've never, ever seen my father wash a dish, sweep a floor or anything like that, hang out washing, never, ever. Men just did not do those things. The roles were very, very, very tight and so on. I, I did have a boyfriend in Northern Ireland just before I left, but I really... I really only uh, did that just for uh, for to have a social life and to have some company and so on. Uh, and I really wasn't I wasn't all that interested, you know. And I kind of, when I look back, I think I probably treated him with total disdain. I worked for the Department of Agriculture at Werribee. I had a pre-arranged job through cousins of mine whose parents had migrated to Australia in the 1920s. They lived in Sydney. And a cousin was able to get me a job at Werribee. And so when I came, I came directly to a job. And as a matter of interest, and this is in 1959, I was paid, it was pounds there in those days, £10 a week. And there was a residential facility at Werribee, and I paid four guineas, if you know what that is. Four guineas is four pounds, four shillings. A guinea is 21 shillings. Uh, I paid four guineas a week board. Anyway, after two weeks, my boss, who was a wonderful woman, and I suspect who was gay also, never married, she was 37. There were only four women who worked in the Department of Agriculture in the technical side, that is, in the scientific side, apart from uh, admin staff. And uh, after two weeks, she put my pay up to $12 a week, and after another four weeks, she put it up to $14 a week. And then, sadly, she was killed in a car accident, and I lost my mentor and my, my good friend and my boss. And But before her boss came to see me, uh, the day after she was killed, and he said, look, one of the things, the last thing she said to me was, I, my salary was to go up to $16 a week. You know, I mean, so she really appreciated me, uh, understood me, and understood that, uh, that I was um, a, good, a good employee and uh, had a lot of knowledge in part. But that was quite a blow. And uh, that was during that time, look, there were 24, there were quarters, single quarters for 24 men and four women on this establishment. <laughs> so there were men at the door daily, you know. <laughs> wanting dates and what have you. Oh, I had a little party for my birthday and my sister, who was in New South Wales, sent me down a beautiful birthday cake. So we got some red wine from Brown Brothers and um, in Rutherglen. So we had uh, red wine and fruit cake. And then mostly men, with only two of my woman friends, were there. <clears throat> and um, as we were leaving, this guy kissed me and that was the guy who ended up becoming my husband. So I decided to marry. I had three children, and in about 1975, something happened that really drove me away and really started me thinking. Now, what happened was my husband accused me of having... I'd had three children, and I became pregnant again, and I thought, I can't bring another child into this unhappy marriage. And to get an abortion in those days was very, very difficult. My doctor, the family doctor, said the only way you can get um, uh, an abortion in those days 
is to spend is to be mentally unfit. So he said, if you're prepared to spend three weeks or so in a mental hospital, then I can give you an abortion. And I did. I spent three weeks in the most horrible place in Caulfield, dank, dark room for three weeks, and not doing anything with a lot of people who were really, really sick. And, and then I was able to get an abortion. And by that time, it was almost three months, and I couldn't have a normal abortion. I had to have what's called a hysterotomy, which is, um, you know, a surgical procedure. All very sad. <clears throat> anyway... Much later on, I think it was 1970, no, it would have been 1977 or so, after dinner one night, the children were allowed to leave the table and go and have watch TV, and my husband and I were chatting, and he said, of course, well, I'd had an abortion in 1968, of course, you slept with um, Michael, a certain person, you know, and that's why you had to have that abortion. Anyway, I was so infuriated. This is a young man who used to work for him. His marble came up and he went to Vietnam. While he was in Vietnam, I used to send him, you know, fruitcake and Vegemite and things. And then when he wanted to come home, he said, can you come home and stay on the farm with us? And we said, yes, of course. So he came and stayed for a month with us on the farm. Now, that was in 1970, and I had that abortion in 1968, so it was physically impossible anyway. But my husband may accuse me of this. And I tried to kill him. I lift the I, I we'd had a roast. I took the carving knife and I tried to kill him. I was planning to kill him that night because I'm Irish and I have a bit of a temper. And the one thing, the one thing that really sets me off is if someone accused me of something serious that I did not do. I was so furious. And sadly, my children saw that fight. We were on the floor and I was really trying to. And it was only because he's much stronger than I was that he averted being having his, I don't know, throat cut or something. So if the police are listening, you can come and get me now if you like. <laughs> anyway, um, so on that, on that night, I decided I'm leaving. This is it. Because that was, I, I actually had a, a job. I stayed home from work for 12 and a half years to raise my children so that the eldest one was at primary school and well settled and so on. And then I started looking for a job and I got a job as a laboratory technician, which was underneath my qualifications, but I took it because, because as a devoted mother, it fitted in with uh, children's school hours and fitted in with school holidays. That's why I took that, 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 that little job. And I enjoyed it, and I made the most of it, and it lifted the job up, and so on. So it was very successful. It was there for about seven years. When you're at home with children, uh, and then they all go to school, you have spare time. You have spare time. There's no ways about it. So I used to play tennis, competition tennis, with a rural, little rural tennis club. And then I was very, I was always interested in politics, and I had joined the, uh, what's called the Australian Local Government Women's Association. So I wanted to learn about how local politics worked and so on. And I was a member of that organisation. I was uh, got up to uh, being state treasurer and organised three, two state and one national conference for them and so on. And then uh, an opening came in my local area for uh, a council position, so I thought, I'll stand for council. So I decided to stand for council, I had a chat to my husband, he said he wasn't too keen. 
and um, because he'd been third generation in that on that property and you know if anyone would stand for council it would really be him not me but I was the one who knew about local government and had studied it and uh, was interested and kept up with what was going so on anyway one of his best friends who's now a federal member of parliament came to visit us and, uh, and to talk about me standing for council and organize the, our campaign and he was really keen. He was president of, he was well known in the community. And said to me, I remember at the table, Grace, you're exactly the kind of person we need on local councils. So I stood for council. There were six standing and uh, they were had to elect three out of that ward. That was the last I saw of that guy. He never came back because he was a friend of my husband's and my husband would have told him uh, I presume that he's not supporting me standing for council and this friend could say well if you're not supporting her I can't support her so that was the last I saw of him so I didn't get in because I didn't have the support of those people but I eventually did when I moved to another part of Victoria I uh, after about two years uh, I had joined the local ratepayers association and I did become a councillor so I achieved my ambition there I was a councillor for three years one woman and 11 men <laughs> oh how interesting that was yeah. like for example I'll tell you one little story uh, when we, we when we were elected the mayor put on an afternoon tea for the councillors to get together for a chat all these new people and one of them who was a logging contractor said to me grace what a lovely afternoon tea you've put on <laughs> i said i didn't do it and i want to tell you i will never do anything like this i'm here for another job and you will soon find out why i'm here and they did because i was a without uh, even if i say so myself i was a, a good counselor and i initiated some wonderful new ideas you know there was a place that needed uh, new parking on a out of town. I had worked out just by observation that the the internal nature strip at that part of town was much wider than it was down the middle of town, and I thought we can put car parking in that median strip. So I got my tape measure out in the middle of the night when there was no traffic and measured the whole thing up in both places. And so I, I, at general business one night, I said to them, look, with regard to West End parking, uh, this is what we can do, you see. I've measured it up. And the mayor said, oh, engineer, would you, would you go down and check those measurements, please? Anyway, they came back and said, she's right, you know. So I just got up and said, thank you, gentlemen. Uh, sorry, mayor, it was unnecessary for the, those guys to go out there. You should have known. I, uh, you didn't know, well, know that I used to be uh, uh, very good at maths and trigonometry and so on, but anyway. And I just moved that they go ahead and, and prepare drawings for the, for the parking. <laughs> so anyway, funny stories. Uh, so uh, after leaving my husband in about 1977, I think it was, I didn't know where to turn to meet people. I really didn't. I wasn't, but didn't belong to anyone. I didn't know any gay people at all. So I, I saw this thing, an ad in the paper for married gays could meet at a place in Franklin Street in Melbourne. And I drove over an hour, well over an hour's drive to this place one night parked the car in Franklin Street, walked up and down past this place, looked at it and couldn't see anything, didn't have the nerve to go in. I can't remember, I actually can't remember how I met a woman 
uh, locally who came to visit, but she, uh, look, I wasn't terribly fond of her. I didn't like her very much, um, and I couldn't see any future there. But it was someone to talk to and chat to and so on. And then she had a friend from Melbourne who used to come up and see her. So that friend came to see me, and we did hit it off, and we had a bit of an affair there, which was really um, lasted for quite a while. And But she'd had a previous partner who moved to Western Australia somewhere, and she came back. So they got together again, and I was left out again. So, you know, there were quite a few goings on. Oh, I did join a group in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne who used to get together for a picnic uh, about once a month. I've forgotten what they were called. But they were quite nice. They were very nice. Um, and and that was uh, all part of my of my learning experience and part of my progression to, you know, eventually finding someone that I could um, share with. And so there was a young woman there who was much younger than me who we got together for a little while, but that wasn't didn't happen. Um, she had a little girl, I think, a little daughter. Uh, that was in 1977. So between then and 1992, I, <laughs> I decided to leave my job because oh, I took my daughter with me when I left home uh, because we were on a big farm, a thousand acres, and I couldn't take those two boys away from that to a, <laughs> you know, a half acre block, you know, a place. But my daughter came with me, and and that didn't work terribly well because she she wouldn't. She was very aggro. She wouldn't help with anything in the house. She wouldn't do anything. She wouldn't even do her homework. And her teachers and I used to talk a lot about it. And, I mean, one teacher said to me on one occasion, Jan came in one day and said, Guess what, Miss Smith? I've done my homework. And she said, Oh, Jan, that's fantastic. And Jan said, April Fool, Miss Smith. So Jan was a very strong-willed young woman. Anyway, I said to her eventually one day, um, Jan, you know, it's not working out. I think you've got to go and be with your brothers on the farm. And she said to me, it's already planned. It's already worked out. They were planning, how would they get Jan back? So that was it for me. So I had to, I invited my sister from New South Wales to come and down and stay with me for three weeks, really. And I took some time off work when I took Jan back to her parents. That's when I was close to suicide. Yeah. I seriously considered it. I was working out how I would do it. <sighs> anyway, yeah. So between 77 and 92, between, yes, I gave my, my, my job and I, I thought I'll just disappear off. I took a job on a big station property as housekeeper in New South Wales, which really was quite a silly thing to do. It really was. It was a wonderful experience. I was only there for about two years, but um, they used to dress for dinner, this elderly couple. They would dress up for dinner every night, and I would put their dinner out through the hatch, you know, and all that. <laughs> but I had a lovely little flat. It was 12,000 acres and lots of places to walk, and and I joined an organisation in Wagga and um, met some people there, but nothing nothing no 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 gay people around there that I could find um so I can't remember a lot of what happened there I stayed up there then I came back I I ended up with about four different jobs from one place to another 
some amazing jobs. One at Wandon, I was deputy manager of a hatchery that produced six million day-old chickens a year, you know. <laughs> so we produced all these day-old chickens and I was in charge and I lived in a caravan on the farm. And my son, one of my sons, second son, came to stay with me and he wanted to stay on and I got him a job on the farm for a, a month or two and he stayed with me in the caravan and so that was nice. About 1990, 91, 91, when I lived in this part of Eastern Victoria, one of the things I did was I, I was elected to the hospital board and I became vice president of the hospital board. And in that place there was a hospital and a, a 67, an 80-bed hospital and a 200-bed aged care centre, and they decided to join the two. And so they were going to appoint a, a new CEO for the two. We decided to advertise rather than try and appoint one of the two existing ones. So I rang a friend of mine in Melbourne and said, do you know of any good woman who would be capable of applying for a CEO job here? And she said, oh, Jill lies again, just like that. So I um, contact, contacted Jill and told her about the job and so on, and she did apply, but she didn't get it. But in doing that, I went to see her. I, I said, I've got some papers. Uh, I took her some stuff that would be of interest to her helping t with the application. And we just hit it off there and then. And then she invited me back, and so we came back and forth. She came to visit me down there and so on, and so we obviously things led to... You know how it does, and um, I decided to come and live with her in Melbourne on a trial basis for a month. And after two weeks, we said, "Okay, it's on." <laughs> so, and we were together for 25 years. We actually worked together because Jill, Jill had been manager of community services in a municipality in Melbourne, and her mother had come from overseas to live with her. The father had died, <clears throat> and so Jill had. Uh, bought a house that was suitable, had a sort of suitable uh, for an older person to have her own separate lounge room and bedroom and so on. She, she had given up her job as manager of community services to, to look after her mother for the last year of her life. And she wasn't able to get any government assistance, you know, during that. She had to use her savings to, to live on for a whole year. And uh, it's about uh, so she took some jobs. She got a job in a senator's office. She was also very interested in um, in politics. And um, uh, we had both joined the Australian Democrats actually uh, in 1997. We were uh, we were original uh, founding members of the Australian Democrats, and uh, we were both candidates for the Australian Democrats. She against Andrew Peacock, <laughs> and I uh, you know, on the state, and then once in the federal. About that time, was deciding to her mother had died and she was had a, a job that wasn't really paying enough. She decided to go into consulting work, and so she set up her consulting business. And then I joined her in that. I at that stage was actually teaching permaculture, well, I, around Melbourne through community houses, and uh, decided to join Jill because of my experience with local government and uh, with community organisations and so on. So I did the community consultation part of our, consul of our consultancies. 
and we worked really well together, did some major work, a major project with the Federal Department of Health, of Housing. City of Moreland was just being formed. We started off working with two, and then we ended up finished working with one, so that was quite a, quite a tricky little thing. We had been to India as volunteers, come back, and then we'd moved up here, and um, Jill had done lots of consultancies around here with the Old Shire of Malden, uh, City of Ballarat, Wangaretta, various places. We were both working on one with Macedon Ranges when Jill got acute rheumatoid arthritis. It came, it just came one day, and within a week she was almost totally paralysed, couldn't type. I had to finish off that consultancy. Anyway, she got to, fortunately, a doctor. We just went to a doctor in Woodend and got a wonderful doctor there who put her onto a wonderful rheumatoid arthritis and managed to kind of nip it in the bud. So we were living at, here in Newstead at that stage and uh, we put in a, a little therapy pool, especially for Jill to get exercise to have to save her travelling so much. However, it all became a bit much and we decided to leave there and it was on five acres leave there and move into Castle Maine. So we sold and then we spent one year, we bought a motor home and travelled around Australia for one year and uh, about nine months and built a small home in Yates Street. Uh, her, her family overseas used to holiday in Phuket and they invited us to join them for a holiday there and we did that and they only go there for about a week. So we said, look, we want to stay for another few weeks so we took a train to Chiang Mai and stayed there for a month and then went to Chiang Rai stayed there for 30 days and then we found this little place on the Me- on the Mekong River Chiang Kong where we went and we ended up going back to that small village for about six years every year for two or three months and it was on Jill and my last trip there that Jill started getting ill. She had a fuzzy feeling in her left side of her brain. And um, we uh, it was diagnosed in Chiang Mai. I don't know whether you know, but Thailand has the most wonderful health system, one of the best in the world. And uh, in fact, of the 22 hospitals in Bangkok, 10 of them are in the top 10 hospitals in the world, or the top 20 hospitals in the world or something. So it was diagnosed as a tumour in the brain, quite a large tumour, 3.7 centimetres. So it was decided that we'd come home, and uh, we'd only been there about a few weeks. And uh, after a mammoth effort, um, we got Jill to the Royal Melbourne Hospital, where they did uh, the biopsy, and that's when it was diagnosed as... uh, glioblastoma, which is an inoperable brain tumour. And she was given three weeks to live. So from the time that she felt that um, fuzzy feeling in her brain in Shang Kong, till the day she died, it was 43 days. Mm. So that was a pretty tough time. But we had absolutely tremendous support from our our community, our local community. The palliative care unit at Castlemaine Health is absolutely superb. Uh, it's like a little unit in itself with a kitchen and lounge room and what have you, fridge and so on. And I was able to stay there with Jill um, overnight, but I didn't get much sleep. So I used to have to go home and have sleep, get some sleep. So one friend organised a a roster 
so that Jill wasn't alone for a single minute for those last three weeks. And <coughs> even the nursing staff said they, they had never seen uh, such support for anyone. After Jill died, her family um, decided they wanted uh, a bit of her estate, and so they demanded um, $130,000. This was done through a solicitor. The executors of her will, uh, there were three, including me, one of them decided we had to use a solicitor. family made this um, demand. And so I went to, I went to four banks in in Castlemaine looking for a loan and one of them said yeah they could give me a loan and then they started taking my details and when it came to my date of birth 1936 he sort of looked at that and he said oh you're going to be 90 before this loan's paid off I'm sorry we can't give it to you <laughs> so don't go looking for a loan girls when you're 90 <laughs> <laughs> or approaching 90. Anyway, um, so around about that time, my son and his gay partner decided to come and live with me for a whole host of reasons. Uh, they were homeless virtually. They were living in a bedroom with their boss. And the house was built as a small retirement village for two adults, so it was really too small for three adults. And so we decided to... Uh, my son had this brilliant idea that we put the property in our three names and then together we buy a bigger property and with three of us uh, contributing we could easily cope with a mortgage. So we did that and we were able to pay pay that loan, pay that $130,000 and then take a mortgage out and um, bought this place here. So uh, I'm 84, I've still got a mortgage and uh, it's not the best sort of situation to be in really but there we are. That's the things that life throws up at you. And you need to be strong. Have support. The main thing is to have lots of support. And I have that. My son and his partner are wonderful support for me here. My son comes in here after work every night see how I am. So that's very nice. Yeah, we were very keen to see marriage equality finally take place in Australia. It uh, was very pretty slow in happening, but finally it did happen after uh, lots of debacles and so on, and that uh, uh, it wasn't a referendum, it was that other thing, whatever it's called. And uh, I think that happened in 1997. No, 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 that only happened recently. In fact, I, t I can tell you when it happened. It happened about five days after Jill died. She died on the... She was buried on her birthday, on the 17th of November, her 74th birthday, 17th of November, uh, 2017. And I think it was about the 20th of November the marriage equality thing was passed. Um, 
which was uh, a terrific thing. We weren't particularly interested in getting married, I don't think, but uh, some lots of our friends did. But it's interesting from my point of view, it's very interesting that the south of Ireland, which is a predominantly Catholic country, um, approved marriage equality. They also, uh, you know, approved abortion again, uh, almost within 12 months or something of that. And I read somewhere the other day where Brazil has um, approved abortion, despite the fact that all the stuff you read about Brazil and, uh, you know, climate change and what have you, it's quite amazing. So uh, one of the interesting things that we did was we had a couple of lesbian friends for lunch one day. I can't remember when it was and had a great time and we said look why don't we make this a regular thing and we said yeah and why don't we invite more people and we we did we worked out a, a method of doing it and we decided okay we made out a list of people about 20 and we said uh, we're planning to have once a month we'll have what's called the last lunch and the idea will be that everyone brings something and the host just provides the venue and the cutlery and the crockery and the chairs and what have you and uh, so that went, that happened, and that went for a long, long time. But it's gone by the board. In fact, I was planning to, uh, I've been in contact with a local lesbian woman here and suggested that we start that up again fairly soon. And she wasn't keen to have uh, many, a big crowd. She thought a small group would be nice, you know. So I don't know uh, whether I might get that going again. Still got the list of members. So it could easily happen, just it could happen, you know, and could happen tomorrow <laughs> if I had the energy. Um, it's certainly a good one to do because, um, especially with COVID and people are feeling a bit uh, worn out and depressed and what have you, it could be a, a good uh, thing to lift our spirits. I think often of all those older women I know and all the other women I don't know out there living alone who uh, don't have support and so on. Please, please get to know your neighbours and ask for help and go out and make friends. I meet people often who aren't good at making friends. I met a woman the other day in Newstead. She's been here six months, and she doesn't know anybody. I'm I'm obviously uh, a pr pretty... Uh, I'm not gregarious, really, but I'm quite open. I talk to strangers. That's the advice I will give to people. Talk to strangers. Some of my best friends were people I talked to who were complete strangers at one stage. And just talk to people in the street, you know, and talk to the guy who's playing music or the woman or something. Or I used to talk to the people who used to sell that homeless magazine, uh, have a chat to them, see how they were going. Yeah, so I'll leave you with uh, that piece of advice. Talk to strangers. Be not afraid.
This podcast has been produced by Shireen Clough, editing and original music by Amy Chapman, interviews conducted by Shireen Clough and Amalia O'Hara. A big thank you to all participants for sharing their stories with such wonderful generosity of spirit. If anything within this episode has been upsetting for you, please reach out and call the dedicated LGBTIQA plus helpline switchboard on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline 13 11 14 Kids Helpline 1800 55 1800.